KPBS On Demand is supported by the National Conflict Resolution Center. Topics like political polarization and hybrid work policies can create workplace conflict. NCRC can help workplace leaders navigate divisive issues with the culture, communication, and conflict certificate. More at ncrconline.com. Many San Diego County businesses can reopen indoors with restrictions. This is basically another attempt to open things up, this time more gradually, and let's hope it works. I'm Mark Sauer with Allison St. John. This is KPBS Midday Edition. A panel discussion on the scope and impact of racism in the military. Many other midshipmen of color at the Naval Academy were questioning why, why should we continue to serve in a nation that doesn't seem to always appreciate us. And many schools prepare specific plans to reopen in person. The bottom line is that our system was not really designed to function this way, so we're, we're reworking kind of all of our systems. That's ahead on Midday Edition. Hi, I'm Bill Hohen. And I'm Ted Hohen. Over the past 50 years, our family has brought many world-class dealerships to Carlsbad, including Mercedes-Benz, Porsche, Audi, Honda, Acura, Jaguar, and Land Rover. That's right. This year, we're celebrating 50 years in Carlsbad. So on behalf of the entire Hohen family, we want to thank San Diego. Throughout the years, we've taken tremendous pride in meeting and even exceeding our customers' automotive needs. We value the relationships with our clients and look forward to serving you for years to come. We invite you to visit one of the Hohen Carlsbad dealerships or hohenmotors.com. The announcement on the state's COVID-19 website was surprising and good news for many San Diego County business owners. Restaurants, gyms, hair salons, places of worship, malls, and movie theaters can reopen indoors with restrictions. That's because the spread of coronavirus has slowed here compared with most California counties. Joining me to discuss the new reopening plan is Dr. Mark Sawyer, infectious disease expert at Radies Children's Hospital and professor of clinical pediatrics at UC San Diego. Dr. Sawyer, welcome to the program. It's great to join you. Well, the state has rolled out a new system replacing the state's COVID-19 watch list with a four-tiered color-coded approach with purple for widespread restrictions and yellow for minimal restrictions. Here's Governor Gavin Newsom. We don't put up green because uh, we don't believe that there is a green light that just says go back to the way things were or back to a pre-pandemic mindset. And San Diego County is in the red or second worst tier, meaning viral activity here remains, quote, substantial. Still, most businesses in the county can reopen with restrictions. Dr. Sawyer, what do you make of this approach? Well, I think I'm cautiously optimistic that, that this is going to work. I hope people have gotten the message that this will only work if we are very compliant with wearing masks and staying socially distanced from other people. If we try to go back to business as usual, we will inevitably see a rebound of cases and be shoved back into the purple category. 
and the new tiered system relies on two indicators, case rate and positivity rate. Yet when it comes to hospitalizations and deaths, the state as a whole is still above the springtime plateau. So you wonder if it makes sense to move forward with uh, reopening even as hospitalizations and deaths remain this high. Yeah, I mean, there's so many metrics you can look at, and there's probably no single right answer to when to reopen and how to reopen. This strikes me as a very reasonable approach. Uh, As you may be pointing out, these businesses that are reopening are reopening with a very reduced uh, number of clients or or, uh, customers, which should help with the social distancing. But we'll find out. This, This is basically another attempt to open things up, this time more gradually, and let's hope it works. Well, right. And uh, unfortunately, around Memorial Day, we had a similar uh, open up and it didn't work last time. Um, Are you confident that the public has learned its lesson, as we say, and and maybe we'll be a little more diligent uh, as individuals? I'm cautiously uh, optimistic about this. You know, we've had another few months since then. People have seen what happens, not only in the United States, but around the world, if you get too relaxed. On the other hand, they've seen what happens in in other countries when they do it well and people are compliant with wearing masks and distancing. Many countries are are pretty much back to business and and we're hoping that this is going to help us get there. Now, San Diego County Public Health Officer Dr. Wilma Wooten can decide to make the new state requirements more restrictive than what we've uh, heard out of Sacramento at the end of last week. And Supervisor Nathan Fletcher, he believes the county should take a more cautious approach. He's concerned because we had that early summer holiday, Memorial Day, and then we saw a surge in June after that. Now we were coming up on on Labor Day. Do you think the state might have uh, just held off until after this holiday? Well, I don't know if if there's ever a great time to, to take this step. I think, again, particularly over the holiday, people need to Keep in mind that the the two secret ingredients here are wearing a mask and distancing from other people. So if you're having a Labor Day picnic, uh, you need to be very careful about that and how many people you involve. So if if we get too relaxed about social distancing, we're going to be back where we were at Memorial Day. And of course, as we're talking, uh, messaging is is critical here and what the public is uh, thinking and doing. President Trump retweeted a distorted message from a far-right website over the weekend saying the real death toll from COVID-19 is just 9,000 nationally, not the CDC's official 183,000, because most dying from the virus had underlying conditions. How does muddled messaging from the president or other leaders impact what the public uh, Uh, health officials are trying to get across on the county level? Well, I think it's crucial. I think it's crucial that we all have the same message. And and I think the the evidence, the scientific evidence is very clear that masks work. It's very clear that this is a serious disease. It's very clear who is at risk for this disease. And in order to protect those people, we all need to pitch in and do the right thing, which is to wear masks and stay away from other people as much as possible. Now, in just a few weeks, the weather's going to turn cooler, especially in many other parts of the country. That means a lot of people going back indoors. Are we looking at a a double whammy? Because that also means flu season's coming up. I wonder, uh, as a a layperson, I wonder, is there a concern about, you know, the flu and the COVID uh, virus still here? Or because of what we're doing with masking and distancing and washing hands, et cetera, uh, might that uh, hold down the flu this year? Because it's a virus after all as well. 
Yeah, that's a great question. Uh, back to your first comment about people going indoors. We The other thing that's very clear from the scientific evidence is that outdoors is a much better environment, a much safer environment. So we're somewhat fortunate here in San Diego. We can continue to do a lot of things outdoors, even things that we normally would do indoors, even into the winter. And I would encourage people to think about that and do that as much as possible. Any indoor environment is gonna be at increased risk because there's decreased air circulation and that's the environment in which the virus spreads easily. Now, we're all concerned about influenza, which will inevitably hit San Diego somewhere between November and February, as it does every year. And you know, particularly if it's a severe flu season, we are going to again be in a situation where we have to worry about healthcare resources. Do we have enough hospital beds and ventilators to take care of everybody? I'm hopeful that pe this will motivate people to get their influenza vaccine. Those vaccines are already starting to become available in the community. So now is the time to go out and get a flu shot and that will decrease your chance of getting influenza and also help with the overall burden in the community. I am a little bit optimistic that social distancing and masks are going to impact or reduce the rate of influenza as well. We saw that back in the spring, we were still having influenza in San Diego. And when we went into lockdown, the cases dramatically decreased. So hopefully it won't be a severe flu season because people are wearing masks and staying distanced. Last question I want to ask you was about schools. In the county, they're expected to get a green light to reopen tomorrow. Uh, what will you be paying attention to as the region continues to move forward with reopening, especially with schools? Well, that's just one other element of this reopening process. The schools, I know, have been very careful in planning how to do this as safely as possible. But we're not really going to know whether that has a big impact on the rates of, of SARS-CoV-2 or not until it happens. So same messages in schools, wear masks, stay socially distanced. Obviously, don't send your children to school if they're sick. Uh, and keep them protected at home as well by following the same measures. I've been speaking with Dr. Mark Sawyer, infectious disease expert at Radies Children's Hospital. Thanks very much for joining us. That oh, was great to join you. Thanks. Hi, I'm Bill Hohen. And I'm Ted Hohen. Over the past 50 years, our family has brought many world-class dealerships to Carlsbad, including Mercedes-Benz, Porsche, Audi, Honda, Acura, Jaguar, and Land Rover. That's right. This year, we're celebrating 50 years in Carlsbad. So on behalf of the entire Hohen family, we want to thank San Diego. Throughout the years, we've taken tremendous pride in meeting and even exceeding our customers' automotive needs. We value the relationships with our clients and look forward to serving you for years to come. We invite you to visit one of the Hohen Carlsbad dealerships or hohenmotors.com. You're listening to KPBS Midday Edition. I'm Allison St. John along with Mark Sauer. Parents and teachers are getting ready to resume in-person classes. County officials say with a COVID-19 case rate below state targets, all schools can reopen starting tomorrow. Many have already started the year online with distance learning. 
KPBS reporter Matt Hoffman takes us inside two East County schools to show us what classes will look like during the pandemic. If they arrive healthy, they're going to remain healthy throughout the day, and we're going to send them home healthy at the end of the day. Blossom Valley Elementary Principal Kirk Hoban says they've proven they can take care of kids safely, hosting a summer daycare program where no coronavirus cases were reported among staff or students. At all grade levels from K through fifth grade, I had an amazing group of teachers who volunteered to come in and be the ones to try this out. And um, we were able to safely bring kids back. Blossom Valley in El Cajon is part of the Cajon Valley Union School District and plans to welcome back kids after Labor Day weekend. Inside of classrooms, desks are spaced apart and each have clear plastic dividers sitting on top of the tables. Hoban says they've learned a lot from summer daycare. The daily arrival and departure of kids, I think, was one of the greatest challenges um, because normally you're not having to pay attention to things like social distancing and do kids have masks. Blossom Valley will keep individual classes isolated from each other. That way kids can still go out for activities like recess. I think the biggest eye-opener, um, you know, we, we know schools are a social place and we know how important that is, but I don't think we realize how important and how critical that social element is, um, both for kids and the families. All of this in an effort to make the return to the classroom feel as normal as possible while protecting kids and families from the virus. The majority of, of, of our school district wants to go back to school. Cajon Valley trustee Jim Miller says to make in-person instruction possible, all students and staff will be required to wear face coverings. The district with more than 15,000 students has been doing classes virtually for about a week now. It's been going pretty good. There's been some technical difficulties, and but overall it's been going pretty good. Are there going to be hiccups? Absolutely. There's hiccups every day in every profession, whether there's a pandemic or not. The question then becomes is, how do you overcome those? Just a few miles away in Lakeside, at Lakeview Elementary, preparations are also underway to welcome students back to campus. The bottom line is that our system was not really designed to function this way, so we're, we're reworking kind of all of our systems. Lakeside Union School District Superintendent Andy Johnson says they're doing things a little differently. They're committing to at least four weeks of distance learning. Classes started online last week and like Cajon Valley, officials are giving parents the option to return to in-person learning near the end of September. We felt it was really important to give parents a choice. Um, so those parents who want to stay in distance learning all year long have that option. To make in-person classes a reality again for its more than 5,000 kids, students and staff in all grade levels will be required to wear face coverings and students will be encouraged to wash their hands every hour to hour and a half. Restrooms will be cleaned hourly and classrooms nightly. So our maintenance and operations team actually designed and then built these hand washing stations. The district is hoping outdoor sinks will promote frequent hand washing. Schools have also been asked to limit high touch areas. Water fountains are turned off and all the kids will have a um, bottle filling station. All the schools have a bottle filling station where the kids can get their water. Classrooms here don't feature those plastic dividers that Cajon Valley is using. Tables facing forward, spaced out. Lakeside Union will also be doing daily health screenings. We do have thermometers. We've got these uh, heat sensing thermometers for all of our staff. So we are going to do temperature checks of all of our students and staff every day. That applies to anyone coming into the office as well. If a student feels sick or is exhibiting symptoms of the virus, they will be isolated on campus. But what about possible closures? San Diego County Office of Education Superintendent Paul Gothold says if 5% of students in class get the virus. That classroom would automatically shut down for 14 days. Uh, if you're talking about an individual school, 5% again is the met metric. Individual school districts will communicate with parents if a student tests positive or if there's an outbreak. Administrators are asking for patience during this uncertain time. Matt Hoffman, KPBS News.
KPBS On Demand is supported by Bill Howe Plumbing, Heating and Air Restoration and Flood Services. Family owned and operated for three generations, Bill Howe has been serving the plumbing, heating and air and water damage needs of the San Diego area since 1980. With their fleet of trained professionals, Bill Howe has the ability to service all major and minor plumbing and HVAC emergency needs 24 hours a day, seven days a week. Bill Howe is committed to providing excellent service to their customers with transparent quotes and attention to detail on every job. Whether you're in need of an HVAC installation, plumbing, or water damage restoration in San Diego, they offer the convenience of scheduling an appointment over the phone, online, or through live chat on their website. Call 1-800-BILL-HOWE or visit billhowe.com. Because we know how. I'm Mark Sauer with Allison St. John. You're listening to KPBS Midday Edition. The killing of George Floyd by Minneapolis police has prompted many American institutions to examine their own racial bias. That includes the U.S. military. Today we're bringing you an excerpt from a KPBS special looking at the scope and impact of racial bias in the military. KPBS military reporter Steve Walsh spoke with retired Marine Stefan Williams, who works with the Defense Department on racial bias, Marine Corps veteran Keisha Jabez-Jones, and retired Rear Admiral Sinclair Harris, who is president of the National Naval Officers Association. Here's their conversation. We're going to start with Admiral Harris. So, Admiral, if you could kind of frame the issue for us. Why does the military see itself as having a problem, and, and, and why do they care about rooting out racial bias? Uh, thank you, Steve. Uh, appreciate it. And it's great to be on such a distinguished panel. The issue of racism in the military goes back to its earliest days. Uh, it has come and gone in terms of its level of importance uh, to the leadership in the United States military and uh, certain events such as for this time, the George Floyd murder um, caused uh, many to, to again uh, reassess how they're valued in uh, our military. In fact, I was just talking earlier today to a young midshipman at the Naval Academy who, along with many other midshipmen of color at the Naval Academy, were questioning why, why should we continue to serve in a nation that doesn't seem to always appreciate us? And I had to give them some encouragement about why. Um, but this is a challenge that continues. Uh, we're a part of America. We're a microcosm of America. Uh, and America's got institutional racism in it, and we come from that same uh, group of human beings. Uh, and why is it important? It's important because in a time, and, and it's not just about uh, doing nice things for black people. In a time when we have so many complexities uh, to the war fighting environment, it is a strategic imperative that we get the best out of all of our men and women, regardless of race, regardless of creed, regardless of gender, regardless of orientation, we get the best out of all of them because the more diverse and inclusive an organization is, every study will show that it is more innovative, more creative, more resilient, and better able to take a holistic view of the challenges that we have coming. So it's a strategic imperative, and I believe that the service chiefs and Secretary of Defense understand that. But by the same token, uh, the Navy has looked at racial bias since, well, at least the 1970s when the head of the Navy, Admiral Zumwalt, made inclusion a real issue and, and instituted a whole series of reforms. 
but we're still looking at it today. So, I mean, now there are efforts at the Department of Defense, each of the services. How are these efforts going to be any different from what we've seen in the past? Uh, Steve, great, great and tough question. Uh, we have to understand that progress is never a straight, smooth line. You may take two steps forward and one step back. Um, that is just a matter of, uh, it's a matter of fact. So you mentioned Admiral Zumwalt, and the picture behind me is of Admiral Sam Gravely, who is the first African-American in the Navy's history to make flag, and that was during Admiral Zumwalt's era. He was the only one for a while. Frank Peterson was the only one for the Marine Corps for a while. Uh, hmm. Today, we have, uh, a, we have about five or six uh, African-American flags. When I was still in um, uniform, we had up to 16, including a, 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 a female four-star, Michelle Howard, a male four-star, uh, Cecil Haney, and of course before them was J. Paul Reason. So the numbers have gone up and down, uh, which is not right. But what it shows you though is that there was, there has been progress, but, but progress uh, is not sustained without the institution investing in the recruiting, the retention, and the career development of all the members of the force. We, we have a picture up on the screen right now. This is, I think if this is 2018. This is the, the top leadership at the Pentagon with President Trump. Um, it looks incredibly, incredibly white. Um, and, and I'm not, this is not a ding on, on President Trump. It didn't look much different, but in the Obama or the Bush years either. So, I mean, one of the issues here is you do not have very many officers, top officers in any of the service branches. Why is that? So, uh, and, and as you can see here, you've got uh, uh, General Brooks, Vince Brooks. Uh, he was there, now he's retired and his relief is General Brown. One, um, that is not satisfactory. I don't see any women in this picture. Uh, and women have taken a continually more and more important role in our military. It goes back again to the, the three things uh, that uh, I know we touched, talked about earlier, the three things that everybody needs to succeed, whether you're talking about the military or civilian or any other part of life. Everybody needs mentoring, everybody needs coaching, everybody needs advocacy. And those are three different things. So mentoring, I think most everybody understands a decent definition of what a mentor is. It can come from 360 degrees, people above you, below you, beside you, on any number of topics. Coaching, coaching, what do coaches do? They get players ready for the field. They get people prepared to take on the tough jobs in order for them to take those key roles. And then the third one, and the, this is the more difficult one, is advocacy. And in the selection boards that we have in the military, as you go up in rank, that those selection boards get tougher and tougher and tougher, no matter what service you're in. If you don't have people who are advocating for you, and in this case, advocating for people that may not look like you, then it's very difficult to break through. I know probably three quarters of the gentlemen in this picture. They are fine men. But I asked them and I asked their current flag officers and generals this question. 
who are you mentoring? Who are you coaching? And who are you advocating for? And if they all look like you, then the picture is never going to change. Yeah. But uh, this is also a numbers game, isn't it? You have to have a lot of people coming into the service that are, are that 20 years from now are ready to step up and become that two-star, three-star, four-star admiral. And right now, the Naval Academy, I believe it's like five or six percent of the incoming graduating class this year is African-American. It doesn't sound like that pipeline is very secure right now. Well, you're talking about a, a very key thing. You use a great term, the pipeline. So the first thing is you got to have a large influx. I think it takes about 3,000 ensigns to make one captain. And I'm sure it's some other huge number like that where you look at the other services. It takes a lot just to get the right quality cut because you can't, you're not going to promote somebody who's not qualified for the position, especially to get more senior. So, so number one is you have to have a, a large number coming in. And, you, and that means you need to recruit from where they are. Uh, uh, you know, if you always fish in the same river, all you're going to eat is trout, okay? You've got to go to where the diverse populations are, Black, Hispanic, women, Asian, all that. Then you mentioned pipeline. So there are leaks all along the pipeline, okay? There are leaks at their first, um, uh, when they finish their initial uh, requirement, five or six years in, as a uh, officer in any of the military. That's a natural break point where a lot of people get out for any number of good reasons. We hope that one of them is not because they don't have a sense of belonging in the organization. We hope that that has been built up. That's what helps keep people pushing on through and their families. Uh, then the next one is that 20 years, it has changed because of some of the retirement uh, rules that have changed, but generally speaking around 20 years. Um, and again, this is at a point where if you don't see a promotion on the on the uh, horizon, what are you doing? Why are you staying there, especially given all the things that you're making your family and yourself put up with? Um, again, that goes back to those other points uh, I talked about advo and advocacy and coaching being among the most important of those things to get through there. All right, we're going to try to bring in a veteran voice here. We've got uh, Keisha Javis-Jones. She's director of the education program at Workshops for Warriors here in San Diego. She is a, a, a former Marine. Are you there? Yes, I'm here. Thank you. Hi. Hi. So tell me, hi. So tell me a little bit about your service. Um, so I spent 10 years in the United States Marine Corps uh, where I deployed to Iraq as a female search team advisor and which also known as a lioness. Um, I was administrator when I first joined. I became a reserve career planner and then that ended me up um, on INI duty where I was a funeral honors coordinator for Western New York as well as the Toys for Tots coordinator. Now we had a little conversation earlier and, and I wanted you to take the audience through this. Um, you were, you headed up an honor guard in upstate New York and you have- That is correct that um, that really kind of highlighted how difficult it can be um, when people are not are not comfortable with you and 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 your position tell us about it yes so being a part of funeral honors um, to me was a great honor to be able to one recognize um, brother and sister for their service um, and be the last person to hand that uh, to their next of kin. 
In upstate New York, um, and many times we would drive uh, to provide honors for a family. And you could tell by the looks on the faces, um, the glares, um, that I was not wanted there by the color of my skin. So at that point, you have to go through in your head, well, one, I know for a fact that I'm going to honor my brother and or sister um, because they serve this country and they deserve to be honored. And that is what uh, we as the Honor Guard do in their last memories. So how do I, um, as a service member, and this is being my job, make sure I respect the family and still make sure I honor my brother and my sister um, without uh, showing total disrespect for their family and their family's um, wishes for me not to be there. And a number of times I would have to step back and let uh, my junior Marines um, who came to do other duties take on that responsibility as I remain in the car. And it was just, you know, unfortunate that someone would not honor the fact that one, I'm serving, um, I'm Marine, and uh, they would look at me as just being a black female that they did not want to have present. Yeah. I mean, what do you do with I mean, What's going through your head at that point? You're there to give the most solemn honor in the Marine Corps, to be there at that funeral, uh, to honor that, that fallen Marine. What, um, I mean, what's going through your head? So at one point, um, for the first one, I would say I was very hurt um, because you would hope that everyone would honor the fact that you've given the ultimate sacrifice to serve this country. Um, myself being a combat veteran, um, I've gone through a number of things, just as many other combat veterans out there have gone to and you know, left my family to serve this country for all the freedoms and rights that we have. So putting pride aside and still remembering my brother or sister who's laying there may or may not have the same views and that really does not matter. But knowing that I'm there to one represent the United States Marine Corps, the two represent um, the honor of this nation. And three, I have to be the utmost professional um, and not let my personal feelings get the best of me in that moment. So I just had to, you know, being from, I'm from South Carolina, I should have mentioned that. And I have um, been victim of uh, racism and sexism in many different aspects of my life. I have to be almost professional and find out, uh, one, deep, dig deep inside and say, you know what, I don't know um, what this individual's family is feeling, but I do know that they took the same oath that I took and I must honor them for what they did and not let their family take anything away from them in the lasting moments where the United States military and DOD is gonna honor them. We have another question from the audience and I wanted to, to make sure I get to, to that. And um, this is from a military spouse. What do you do when our service members face retaliation by the chain of command for reporting racism? Any one of our guests wanna take that one? Yes, I'll take that one. Um, that is something that happens um, a lot and um, is very, uh, very tough for the actual service member to try to believe into the system that is in place to actually address these issues. And uh, the, the best thing I can tell you is to take it to another level. It doesn't stop at the command. You can go all the way up to 
headquarters, Marine Corps, headquarters, Navy, and you got to keep pushing it. You know, you got to keep pushing it. And once the, it's in the right people's hand, things change. They send people from outside of the organization to come in and do another investigation where there's no internal influences on the outcomes. And most of the time it stops at the command level and which is hard, but a lot of these individuals don't want to go anymore um, because of the re retaliation, because of the reprisal that happens when you do report. So I would say take it to the next level. And, you, and, you, and we're talking to Stefan Williams here. And uh, Admiral Harris? I, and I, I agree with Stefan completely. I would also say if it doesn't work at that, that's why you have a congressman. Okay, I mean, that all sounds well and good though, but we just talked about how hard it is to advance in the military and how you have to have all of the right mentors and everything has to be squeaky clean. If you complain, I've, I've talked to African-American officers who felt that once I complained, I suddenly for some reason became the problem, not the actual racist incident. Um, you're telling me that they'll be able to do that and have no impact whatsoever? I'm not saying that it'll have no impact. I'm not saying that people aren't hurt along the way. What I'm saying is that when I look through the history of the Golden 13, uh, the Marine Corps Pathfinders, uh, the first African-American women to join the military. I look at all the predecessors that put up with far more than I did, and they stood up and they spoke up, and they may have had to take a hit so that I could progress. I, it, it would be a dishonor not to do that, and we need to keep pressing forward. It won't be perfect. There are going to be people that take casualties. There's always war and casualties, but they have to keep pressing forward. But when that casualty is somebody's career, isn't that why we don't have three and four-star admirals in the Navy? And if we shut up, we're not going to get any farther. So you have to keep pressing forward to make change work. Okay. All right. So I, I, I hadn't formally introduced Stefan Williams here. He's a facilitator from Melbourne, Florida. Um, it's been his job to, you know, facilitate just these kinds of discussions here. And um, it's just ironic. I wish this, this, this segment wasn't as timely as it keeps becoming, but just today, NPR released a poll saying about 36% of Americans say they've taken some concrete step or action to better understand racial issues after the George, after George Floyd's killing. Only about 30% of, of white Americans have done that. I mean, that's better than none, right? But it's still, it sounds like we have a very long way to go, doesn't it, Stefan? Um, yes, you know, culture change takes time, you know, it's incremental. Um, and the thing about the racism inside of America, anything that's in society is in our military. The only thing that's different, we are more closely related to each other and we under this one umbrella, Marine, Navy, soldier, whatever it may be, that kind of keeps us intact. However, those racial uh, ideologies still permeate throughout the culture of the Marine Corps, the Navy, all services. So um, it's going to take some time. It's definitely going to take some time for us to make that turn. But we can't forget, if you go back 60 years, where are we? Something that's been going on for hundreds of years, policies that were written, laws that were put in place. You know, those things are things that we are still trying to get over. So it takes time to change a culture. It takes time to change a behavior that has been deeply rooted in our country's um, soil, in our country's 
military, in our country's law enforcement, in our country's businesses. It doesn't stop there. So what's, what, what I would tell you is basically we got to keep moving forward. We got to keep having these conversations. One thing in the military I would tell you that we can no longer do anymore. As a military member, as a Marine, I'm well-trained. That means if somebody busts through my door, instantly I'm going to react without thinking because I'm trained to react to a stimulus. However, we need to educate. We can't do check-in-the-box training all the time and think that, hey, we got the roster, we're good to go. No, we must educate now. We must educate. And one of, one of my mentors, my biggest mentor who I'm still in contact with today is Jane Elliott. And when I, when I came across her brown eyes, blue eyes experiment, and I, I highly encourage anyone that's watching this, go and watch that on YouTube. 14 minutes of change your life. Race is a social construct. It's about power differentials. It's not about biological differences. It's about power. And when you understand it doesn't matter what color you are, it depends on who writes the laws, who controls the laws of the land, who has the resources that will determine who has more and who has less. All right, well, you're the educator here. So, and going along with these efforts at the Department of Defense and at the Navy, they've talked about having these death plate conversations. Yeah. Rank and file Marines, rank and file sailors, um, soldiers, they need to discuss these issues with one another and talk about their biases with one another. Um, all right, so give us the rules. How do you go about doing that and so you can have a productive conversation? Now, are you talking about at the higher organizational level or just at the lower level? What you do with your facilitation, okay. right there, you know, person to person. The CNO yeah, right. is asking people to do that kind of a conversation. How do you right. do it in such a way? Well, it has to be set up properly. First, the first thing that needs to happen, the head must get in front of this. The head must get in front and say, hey, this is something important that we need to address. And it cannot be a canned speech. They need to reveal who they are and what their beliefs are so that people can say, okay, you know what? I can, I can identify with you as saying, hey, we know these things are in our uh, society. Uh, I have some biases myself. However, at this point, at this time, we must all open up to have this dialogue. Now, so the head must get up front. That means the leadership must get up front. Second, the environment must be safe. You got to create a safe environment, a psychologically safe environment, meaning that if I have a viewpoint that's different from yours, whoever's mediating that conversation should be able to keep everybody in a, in a um, I would say in a neutral state. So if, um, if Sinclair says something like, hey, I disagree with you, Stefan, about that, and I allow him to speak, you know, the facilitator would set rules up, say, hey, don't say I disagree. Say, you know what, Stefan, I have a different perspective than you have. Allow me to share. Because the thing we got to keep down the defenses. So if a person feels that it's comfortable enough for them to speak on what they believe, now we can have an open dialogue as long as it's mediated properly. Everybody can't talk about this. You can't just, you can't push them in an auditorium. You can't push them in a classroom without someone who's professionally trained to help mediate that very volatile conversation. So you one, you gotta put the leadership up first. Two, you gotta set some type of norm to create a safeguard for everybody in the room so they want to share. They might have a different perspective. Teach mm -hmm. them how to share because everybody doesn't know how to communicate in the Marine Corps, or in, just in the military. You know, we, we mostly, hey. I've heard that about the Marine Corps, yeah. Yeah, yeah, shut up and get it done. You know, shut up <laughs> and get it done. You know, grow thick skin. Right. And, and, and that's kind of how we culture to talk about things. However, with this conversation, 
I need to be open to hearing a different perspective off the bat. And I think I, we've talked about this. Yes. What you can't do is come in and, and try to have a debate. Yeah, no debating. No debate. So you want to be able to be open and communicate yes. with one another and be there most of what? To learn, right? And to, to actually learn. hear. Yes. You got to come in with a open mind and you can't come in to debate somebody else's experience. Just because it didn't happen to you doesn't mean it doesn't happen. You know, and I've seen it happen many times. Someone, well, I never experienced that. that well, that doesn't mean it didn't happen. So you have to be open to, to, um, to something different. You got to listen empathetically to understand where that person's coming from, you know, and try to see what's happening for, in their world in that military culture. You have another question? No, I just have Keisha. I wanted to bring her back into the conversation. She's had to lead Marines, I know, at, at various points where she kind of didn't know where they were coming from. Can you talk to us a little bit about your own experience? Yes. Um, so I'm going to go back to what Rura Harris was saying earlier about mentorship, coaching, and advocacy. I totally agree. Um, one of the things that I will say in the Marine Corps we're really good with is once a Marine, always a Marine, right? Um, the other thing is we start off with a family. Now, I will say that when I first joined the Marine Corps as early as boot camp, um, there were many people that had never actually had a conversation with the African-American woman. Uh, they've never seen my hair texture. They wanted to touch my hair. Um, but instead of shutting those individuals off, you have to be open to the conversation. Let them ask the question. Uh, let that be a part of the education that they're missing because of where they're from. Um, I was also faced with individuals that came from a very um, racist homes. Uh, and I think it's really about opening up and letting them hear the honest view, respecting where they come from without being overbearing, um, and then also speaking to other individuals that you see them already engaging with about what you see in them and how they can help you. So that was a, a lot of what I did when I had those situations. Um, I was did you ever run into subordinates where it's like, these people do not like me? Can you tell? I mean, is it is it overt? Oh, you can tell. Be um, wow. in you giving a order or direction, and they just blatantly ignoring you uh, to the Snickers behind your back, whatever that may be. Uh, you can tell. And really, the the way to address it is usually not head on because they already have such a bias um, against you from either their upbringing or where the the social. Uh, norm of where they have come from. And so you have to penetrate that very differently. And usually it's with education and understanding and starting those hard conversations. Um, where I came from, I'm from South Carolina. So I was one of the only African-American girls in the classroom up until I was in middle school. Uh, there was no African-American males either. Uh, racial slurs started in elementary school. So um, I knew what that looked like prior to joining the service. And I know even young how I dealt with it. And a lot of it was being open, knowing that they learned that somewhere else, it's not right. Having the hard conversations to help them uh, learn to respect you, your leadership role, and your understanding and respect of where they came from. Mm. Uh, Stefan, um, is, are there some people that you just don't try to address? Like, are there some people that are just not ready for it? and? I mean, if, if there's a situation where you're a leader, you're going to have to address it on some level. 
but actually trying to get in there and, and really change people's understanding. There's some people that, that um, they're really not ready to hear. Yes, there are many people who aren't ready to hear. You know, um, to try to change a person's belief system, it's like pulling teeth. You know, they're going to hold on what they believe in, you know, and you got to think about this. Racism is taught. You've been indoctrinated over and over from whoever brung you up and what we see in society. And you start to see those stereotypical behaviors of the people that you've been told that, hey, they are savages, they are thieves, whatever it may be. You cannot even see the person for who they are because you're looking through your lenses that have already been pre-made for you by your, your caregivers, you know, whoever that may be. So um, some people, you got to know when, hey, I'm not even going to push the button to go there. You know, you, you don't waste your time. You don't waste your energy. But the thing that I love about the military is that, and I had it happen to me hundreds of times, people come in with racist um, beliefs and stuff from different places. That's why recruiters uh, strategically place certain places, because that's what she ran into, one of those places that they want a certain type of recruiter there, right? So what I'm saying is that because of the close proximity with me and my leadership, because of them getting a chance to know who I am and watching me treat them with dignity and respect, it made them shift their own way of seeing people. You know, it made them believe that, you know what, I, I think what I was told was a lie because you're not like what I thought you were, what was in my mm -hmm. mind. So the close proximity to the military, you know, that helps a lot of people get over the racism thing. Uh, um, General Stewart of second, second MLG, Second Marine Logistics Groups, at uh, Camp Lejeune, where I was doing before the COVID thing happened, he got up front and told a very personal story to all his, his colonels and sergeants majors. And it opened everybody up. That's why I'm saying the head has to get in front of the body first before we move. And then people felt safe enough to say, you know what, you know, I was, I was, I was raised to be a racist and I'm a sergeant major. And yes, I still have some of that stuff in my mind. However, I try not to act upon it. So um, the close proximity in the military kind of makes the hours a little more covert. You got some people who are a little bit more overt, the ones you can't talk to. However, um, the, the exposure, like she was saying, we got to be exposed to things that are different from us. And we got to be okay. open and learn what those things are, you know, and not to stretch it out because I know our time is tight. But one of the things that I always done, you know, as a, as a Marine leader, as a facilitator of equal opportunity in the military, I say, I go back to the Marine Corps leadership principles. Know yourself and seek self-improvement. Set the example. Okay. You know, know your people and look out for their welfare. If you're not actually putting those things in practice, you're not being a, a total Marine. Because every Marine isn't green, and you need to know, know who they are, where they come from, the best way to connect with them so we can get the best out of them through mentoring, coaching. That was retired Marine Stefan Williams. You also heard from retired Marine Keisha Javis-Jones and retired Rear Admiral Sinclair Harris, president of the National Naval Officers Association. They were speaking with KPBS military reporter Steve Walsh. Their discussion was made possible by the American Homefront Project. On Thursday, a second panel discussion will look at how the military copes with white supremacy. Information about how to join that conversation is on our website, kpbs.org. KPBS On Demand is supported by Bill Howe Plumbing, Heating and Air, Restoration and Flood Services. 
Family owned and operated for three generations, Bill Howe has been serving the plumbing, heating and air, and water damage needs of the San Diego area since 1980. With their fleet of trained professionals, Bill Howe has the ability to service all major and minor plumbing and HVAC emergency needs 24 hours a day, seven days a week. Bill Howe is committed to providing excellent service to their customers with transparent quotes and attention to detail on every job. Whether you're in need of an HVAC installation, plumbing, or water damage restoration in San Diego, they offer the convenience of scheduling an appointment over the phone, online, or through live chat on their website. Call 1-800-BILL-HOWE or visit billhowe.com because we know how.